If you have your Bible today, turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We're looking at a a whole series of messages called Radical. Uh, It was based on the concepts from this book, Radical, by David Platt. As I've said before, I like many things in it. Some things not so much, but uh, as any time someone writes, this man is a a great man of God, loves the Lord. Uh, God's used him in a great way as a pastor. But we're taking some of the concepts and looking at them, and today we're looking at the concept of conductivity. Conductivity. Do do you all understand conductivity? I didn't really know for sure. I looked it up in, in the, the, actually on the, the website, and the website was, uh, it's conductivity for elementary schools, okay? That's what I looked it up. Conductivity is the measure of the ease at which an electrical charge or heat can pass through a material. Metal is the most conductive. If, if you want to electrocute yourself, if there's electricity running through something, metal, grab hold with both hands. That's a really good way to do that. You can electrocute yourself pretty easily. That's conductivity. Uh, the most conductive metal of all is, anyone know? Copper. Copper. Very good. Wrong. But it was a very good answer. The answer is actually silver. I did not know this. I got this completely wrong. I thought gold because you see all these new gold connectors out there. Silver is rated 100 out of 100. Copper is 97. So if you said copper, you were so close. Gold is actually 76. Uh, the reason that they use gold a lot is it doesn't spark as much as, as some of the others, although silver, again, is the best in sparking and conduct- conductivity. Insulators are the least conductive, like rubber, ceramic. Uh, the old power lines used to have the big ceramic knobs, and they put them through, or the knob and tube wiring. Uh, for those of us that are really old, remember having a house. We bought a house with knob and tube wiring, and it was great until you grab hold of both of the, the uh, power lines at one time. It was not a good thing. And, and so that's conductivity. In today's world, there's something else that's very conductive, and it's called fiber optics. It's, it's actually it's glass. It's a rod of glass, and you put light at one end, and the glass conducts the, the light to the other end. And so much of our modern communication is built on fiber optics today. The problem with fiber optics when it first came out in 1966 was that there were so many contaminants in it. And so they had to purify it, and even though they've had that technology for many years, it's just recently they've been able to purify the the fiber optics so that they're more bendable and so more pliable and more pure. And you say, great, Pastor, we have our science lesson, let's go home. What does that have to do with me? Well, the Lord developed the whole concept of conductivity way before we thought about it. With electricity, with fiber optics, he did it in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapters, uh, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, there's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. God came to Abraham and he says, listen, I'm going to call you out of, of, of where you are and I'm going to bring you to this place. And he makes a covenant. And this is what he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. That's great news. God's going to bless Abraham and through Abraham he's going to bless all of of Israel. And through Abraham, we find in the New Testament, in Romans, that we are also children of Abraham in the sense that every believer in Jesus Christ also is blessed by God. So I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And then look at the next part. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
God says, I'm going to use conductivity. I'm going to conduct through you my work. I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless others. Look at the next part. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth, that's us, that's where we fall in, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And the radical part of our faith is that we can't just grab hold of the faith and keep it for ourselves. The radical part of our faith is that when Jesus Christ comes into our life, when we start this whole new process of knowing who Christ is, we cannot keep it to ourselves. The radical part is that we're supposed to give it away. In fact, more than that, we are to, as we're blessed, we're to bless others. What Christ does in me is to flow through to others. We're to be conduits of God's blessing. That's where we're going with the message today. Now, in Matthew chapter 20, I talked earlier that there are some impurities. And so, what impurities hinder my conductivity? What is it in my life that needs to go away? And we see some pretty radical responses. Uh, we, We see kind of a humorous event that happens in the life of the disciples. Look at Matthew 20, starting in verse 20, and we're going through, going to go through verse 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons. Have you ever heard the term stage mom? This is a mother who says, oh, my boys, they're the best. The stage mom comes and says, oh, my daughter, she's the best ballerina. All oh, my children, you know, and they're always pushing their kids. James and John wanted to, to get the Lord's attention. So what do they do? They go to their mother and say, hey, mom, come put in a good word. Now, I'm not knocking motherhood. I think it's great. And moms, I want you to be proud of your kids. Just watch out what you say, Okay. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, bowed down before him, asked a favor of him. Look at this. This is what Jesus says. What is it you want, he asked. Do you think Jesus already knew when she she showed up? Yeah, absolutely. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Hey, Lord. James and John, these are the two best guys you've got. Why don't you put one right-hand man, left-hand man, first and second in the kingdom? What do you think? And look at what Jesus says in verse 22. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been been prepared by my Father. Now get this. They come and they say, we want to be right and left. And Jesus says, wait a second. You don't understand this whole cup that I'm going to drink. Oh, yeah, we can do that. They're just, yeah, 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 we can do that. What do you want? What do you want? We'll get there. Jesus says, you have no clue what you just asked. But then he goes on to say that, that the Father has already predetermined this. And look at verse 24, when the 10, that's the other 10 disciples of the 12, when the 10 heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What impurities 
hinder my conductivity. There's two glaring impurities that come out here, first with James and John and then with the other ten. The first one is, do I struggle for position or influence? If you want to be conductive, if you want to, to spread God's love, you can't always be looking for power. It, it, it can't be a struggle for position. Oh, if I could just have this position, if I could just be this person, if, if the Lord would just grant me this, God, if you would just give me this little thing here, that's not what it's all about. And the mother of James and John may be the, the sister of Mary, Salome. It looks as if it may be an aunt of Jesus. So not only do they bring the mother, but they bring a relative. You know, get the family involved. Hey, Jesus, your aunt is here, wants to talk to you for a second. If that is true, and I believe that it's very, very likely that it's true, there's all this pressure. And what does Jesus say? What is it you want? What do you want? That's a really good question. When you come to Jesus Christ, it ought to be a question that that we ask of ourselves. What do you want from Jesus Christ? Well, I, I, you know, I want my life to be smooth. Then don't come to Jesus Christ. That's not what Jesus Christ promises. Jesus Christ says, come to me and, and, and I will take your burdens and I will give you forgiveness. But the closer you come to Jesus Christ, Jesus at one time says, listen, if, if, they, if, they, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If I'm going to have to suffer, you're going to have to suffer. And we have this misconception that if we come to Jesus Christ, everything's going to be wonderful. We're going to get the big car and the big house and the big promotion and all these things are going to happen. And sometimes they will happen, but that's not what always happens when you come to Jesus Christ. James and John are already in the inner circle. When, when Jesus, sometimes the, the disciples get to a place and they go into a home and he says he left the, the nine and Peter and James and John went with Jesus into the inner circle when Peter's mother, uh, mother-in-law is sick. That's how we know that Peter was married. He had a mother-in-law. And, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick and, and Peter and James and John come in and several other times that happens. In the Garden of Gethsemane, at, at the very crucial part of Jesus' ministry, right as he's going to the cross, the Garden of Gethsemane, He takes the 12 to the garden and he says to the nine, you stay here. And he calls Peter, James, and John, you guys come on with me closer. I need the three of you. You'll understand and you'll pray with me. And they all fall asleep. He's in the inner circle already. And he says, can you drink the cup? Keep your place here. Go back to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a a fascinating prophecy of what's going to happen for the Messiah. And, and you get to the Psalms and, and you realize that there are several Psalms here that, that describe some of the things. Psalm 22 is one of those Psalms that, that if you knew it and you, and you understood it, it, it should be very powerful. Starting in verse 12. Verse 12 says, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Verse 13, Psalm twenty-two, thirteen: 13. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus is, is laid out in the dust of death where they crucified many people. He's laid out in that dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have, has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Amazing. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever even thought of, hundreds of years before that, there's this prophecy that someone would have their hands and their feet pierced in crucifixion. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me, verse 17. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. 
Jesus says, do you want the cup? Here's the cup. This is what's going to happen. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be like lions and bulls trampling me and, and tearing at my flesh. They're going to divide my clothes, and they're, going to, and they're going to cast lots over the one garment that's worth something. And do and you understand I'm going to be laid in the dust of death and my hands and feet pierced? Can you do that? And James and John say, sure, we can do it, except they have no clue. It's the cup that Jesus is talking about. The tendency to want position, to want attention, to want to be in charge is deeply ingrained in every one of us, isn't it? We have two little dogs. We have Bo and we have Buddy. Buddy is the big brother. Bo is the little brother. And those two little dogs over Thanksgiving vied for attention, vied for position. We had some people over for Thanksgiving. And immediately they climbed up in people's lap and they looked so adoringly because they could smell turkey. Actually, they didn't like any of you that came over. They just wanted your food. They were vying for position. They were vying for attention. And what's funny is that several times since then, I would sit down in my chair, and I would sit to relax, and all of a sudden, the little dog would jump up, and then the big dog would jump up, and I've got two dogs in my lap. And what do they want? They're smelling my breath. What did you have? Can I have some of that? And so many times that's exactly what we do. Jesus talks here, and he uses very strong words. He talks about the archontes, the, the Greek word archontes. It's the rulers. It's, it's built on the word ark, which is the big magnificent structure. The megaloi, the, the high officials, and even the word mega, megaloi, it sounds like it is. And he says, if you want to be great, if you want to be megas, if you want to be first, you want to be protos, the, the, the uh, prototype. If you want to be the prototype of being great, what do you do? He says, you have to serve. Jesus says, I came as the prototype of, of the servant to give my life as a ransom for many. He's hearkening back to Isaiah 53, the, the, the servant songs. Isaiah 53. He says, in verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, all of the sin of everyone that's ever lived the iniquity of us all he was despised and he was rejected and he was beaten and he was brutalized on our behalf and we struggle for position were those just words no in john 13 look at what it says in john 13 it's kind of interesting because it's the last supper it's it's they've come for communion it's passover time in John 13, if you read the whole portion, is, is so powerful. In John 13, verse 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. And then it says he took his outer clothes off. He, he wrapped a towel around himself. And then verse 5, after that, Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. It's the lowest of the low. It's the servant's job that nobody wants. Many biblical scholars, when they look at the whole thing and where Peter was and how he could see Jesus and where John was and the whole thing, it looks as if Peter was the last one seated. It looks as if it was supposed to be Peter's job to wash the feet. And Peter, one of the inner circle, thought he was too good to do it. So the King of kings and the Lord of lords, how great is our God? How great is our God? We've just been singing about that. The King of kings and Lord of lords got down, stripped out off his outer clothes, and in his underwear puts basically this towel around him and kneels down and begins to wash feet. And when he gets to Peter, Peter says, Don't do this, Lord. And Jesus says, Don't you understand? I need you to learn to serve. Do you struggle 
for position or influence. Number two, do I struggle with jealousy? After the two have pulled their little stunt, the other ten, and you can just see Peter. Hey, James and John, how come you guys didn't let me know you were going to do this? I could have been in on this deal. I could have been a part of that. The other ten, they hear about this, and it says they are indignant. Very strong word, Matthew 21, 15, when it says that Jesus cleared the temple and the children began to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna. The religious leaders are indignant. In in Matthew 26, when Mary of Bethany comes, and and this is right before the crucifixion in in the last week, Mary of Bethany comes and there's a dinner, and she begins to anoint the feet of Jesus with oil, this perfume, and and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And this is so uncomfortable for everybody. I mean, socially, this is off the map. No one should do this. And it says that the disciples were indignant. D.A. Carson, who is a Bible scholar, says the indignation of the ten sprang less from humility than jealousy. Plus, they had the fear that they may lose out. They wondered if maybe James and John had somehow inched closer to Jesus by doing this. They, they, were, they were indignant, they were jealous, they were afraid. James 4.1 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. William Bennett, Bill Bennett, is, I think, a a pretty humorous guy, and he tells a a story, supposedly a true story, two Irishmen who always loved to fight. And they come one day, uh, one night, they, they've come out of a restaurant, and there are two men out on the street, and they're just duking it out, slugging it out, this, this huge fist fight. And they watch it for a minute, and then Bill Bennett says, this is what they ask, is this a private fight, or can anyone get involved? We love a good fight. And Christians like that are, are like that sometimes. And Bill Bennett says there's something wrong, there's viscerally something wrong with a good Christian that, lo- a Christian that loves a good fight. There's something wrong with a Christian who wants to take part in these battles. He says that, that should be the last thing that we want to do. Jesus longs for so much more than that from us. And when the ten come to him and they're indignant, he calls them together and he says, don't you understand This has been the world order from day one that the Gentiles rule over and and they lord over it. And these words are all used, the megaloi, all of these uh, archontes, all of these guys, this is what they do. This is not what we need. And I love the fact that last Sunday night I saw a lot of servanthood. I saw a lot of people who came and they said, how can we serve? We had people literally coming into the kitchen saying, I'll wash dishes, and, and other people saying, no, I've got it. And we had people coming and, and wanting to help out and wanting to, to take the chairs up and to take the, and take the tables up. I mean, this is a huge task, and I, had, and I saw the servanthood, the, the, additive, the attitude of servanthood. Folks, do you understand? That's a huge change. Ten years ago, the motto of this church was, if you need something done, hire somebody. And now the motto of the church is, if you need something done, just ask the people who want to serve. That's a huge change. And the the Lord says, this is what I want from you. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. Look at what it says. Love is patient. Paul is writing to a church that's divided and broken and, and hurting. And he says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. There's no jealousy involved in this love. It does not boast. It's not proud, it's not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. And every married couple should write down that last phrase, it keeps no record of wrongs. 
You don't keep score. You know, well, you know, she, this time, boy, I'm going to mark down. Well, that's two points probably. And I only did one, so I'm ahead. You, you keep no record of wrongs. And the truth is in the church, for centuries, people have kept records of wrongs and were jealous. The Lord says, wait a second. I gave you life. I sent my son for you. I've given you everything. What more do you want? But, but about, no. What have I done for you? What are those impurities that hinder my conductivity? And the second part is what characteristics improve my conductivity? Over a period of time, they have improved the fiber optics uh, exponentially so that, so that now they are so much stronger, faster, uh, better to use. What characteristics improve my conductivity? Look back at Matthew chapter 20, looking at verses 29 through to the end of the chapter. It says this, As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. They were leaving Jericho. A large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, now get the scene here. Jericho is in, in, the, in the lower part. It's there by the Dead Sea. It's a, it's, it was the, the symbol of the strength of Israel, when they, when, or of Canaan, when Israel came in. It's where they marched around Jericho. The walls fell. There was an old Jer Jericho. There was a new Jericho. There were two city, city places, and it had been rebuilt, and it was still this, this huge place because the roads crossed right there, and so it was like being in Chicago or Kansas City where we had all these crossroads, people going north and south and east and west, and Jericho was very busy, and they're walking by the side of the road. Two blind men began to say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, son of, da son of David, a messianic title, by the way. Lord, Messiah, have mercy. Look at verse 31. The crowd rebuked them, told them, be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. It's busy. It's hustling. It's bustling. Jesus stopped, verse 32, and called them. The same phrase, what do you want me to do for you? What is it you want? What do you want me to do? You have two blind people. What do you think they want? Why did he ask that question? Did Jesus know what they wanted? The same thing that he knew about the mother of James and John. He knew what they wanted, but he wanted to hear it from them. Lord, they answered, verse 33, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight. Now look at that last phrase, and followed him. It's one of the only times in the New Testament, I think it may be the only time, where someone's healed and immediately becomes a follower. And the terminology here is that they, that they gave everything. They, they went immediately to be with him. What characteristics improve my conductivity? Number one, crave compassion. Crave compassion. It says that Jesus saw them and had compassion on them. Jesus demonstrated compassion four times in Matthew, other times as well. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, this whole crowd is there, and Jesus is surveying the crowd, and it says as he sat on the hillside and saw the crowd, it was as if they were like sheep that had no shepherd, and he had compassion. They needed someone to care. They needed a shepherd. They needed someone to take care of them. In Matthew 14, 14, John the Baptist is murdered by Herod. Uh, 
John the Baptist is, is killed. He's, he's murdered for no reason. And Jesus says to the disciples, let's get away. Jesus needs some time to pray. To pray. This is the man who has become his Elijah. This is the man that Isaiah 40 talked about, the one who's going to prepare the way, the one who's going to talk about the, the road that's built in the wilderness for him. That's what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist is the first one who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is the one who has baptized him to signify what's happening and, and, and initiate the ministry of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is irrelevant. John the Baptist is someone who's close to him, and Jesus is heartbroken. He knew it was going to happen. He understood that it had to happen, and yet Jesus is heartbroken, and he wants time alone. And a crowd, a huge crowd shows up. It says in Matthew 14, 14, that he had compassion because many of them were sick, and he healed them. In Matthew 15, 32, there were 4,000 there. And he says to the disciples, 4,000 men plus their families. And he says to the disciples, they've been three days without food. What should we do? And this is the second time it's happened. He's already had feed, fed the 5,000 men and their families. Now it's 4,000. And he says, what should we do? And, and the disciples are, are thinking, well, Lord, you did it before. What, you know, what, are you, what are you asking us? And the Lord, it says the Lord had compassion on them. Do you care about those who need someone to care about? Do you need... Do you have compassion for those who need healing? Do you have compassion on those who are hungry? Why don't we have more compassion? The truth is, for me, I don't know what your answer is, but the truth is, for me, sometimes I think it's their own fault. They made, they made bad decisions. If they'd made better decisions, if they'd saved up more money, if they'd taken better care of things, then they wouldn't have had these situations. And many times, the reason, the, the things that I use to justify my lack of compassion are... It's their own fault. I read a book called Same Kind of Different as Me. A man by the name of Denver Moore, raised in plantation-style slavery in the 1960s, escaped that slavery. I, I mean, it wasn't literal slavery, but it was slavery because they kept them bound up with a company store and the whole thing. He escaped. He hopped a train. He wandered the streets of Dallas for 18 years. This man that was just named after a city, he actually took his own name, I believe, Denver. And Denver was wandering in Dallas for 18 years, and Deborah Hall came to a rescue mission there and began to, to start this relationship, and she realized that he needed a man to come along his side. And she and finally got her husband, Ron Hall, to be a part of that. Deborah Hall eventually dies of cancer, and Ron Hall befriends this man, allows him to come and live with him for a while. They write a book, Same Kind of Different as Me. And Ron Hall says that I went thinking I was rescuing Denver, and the truth is that Denver rescued me from my lack of love and compassion for another one of God's children. It's powerful. This man who was mega wealthy and this man who was extremely, po uh, extremely uh, poor and, and had no, known nothing but poverty and sickness and beatings and, and being the dregs of society, they came together because of Jesus Christ. We make the same assumption. We make the same assumption. And the disciples made it in John chapter 9. You remember the story? There's a blind man, another blind man. Jesus comes along in John chapter 9 verse 2 and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You know what struck me? I was reading through that again. You know what struck me about that? The guy was blind, not deaf. 
There was a television show called Becker. I didn't particularly like that. Ted Danson starred in it. I didn't like it, but they had a blind guy who was selling papers. And many times they would talk about the blind guy, and he would say, I'm blind, not deaf. I can hear you. And so they would take a couple of steps back, and they would say the same thing. He says, I can still hear you. And I wonder if the blind guy that day, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I wonder if he said, hey, guys, I'm here. Do you care about me? We make that assumption. Verse 3, Jesus responds, this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Is tragedy or crisis a potential platform for God to display his glory? Every time. Every tragedy, every crisis is a potential platform for God to show up and do the things that only he can do. These blind men would not be stilled. In reading through this, uh, Joseph Stoll, uh, as he's commentating on, uh, or commenting on this passage, says, compelling causes martial, powerful responses. Did you get that? Compelling, compelling causes martial, powerful responses. Jesus is coming along, and these men who deep in their heart know they have no hope of ever having sight, see, or, or, see in their mind, I guess, and hear of him and realize that this is their one chance and the compelling cause was that there was someone who gave them some hope and they said, have mercy on us, have mercy on us, and they would not shut up. They could not quiet them. Crave compassion. Number two, develop discernment. Develop the dis- discernment. The crowd tried to quiet them down. Sometimes that's a good thing, but not this time. They did not want to bother the Lord, and, and so the crowd, it says, do we know if that was disciples? You have to know that probably the same James and John, because they're so close to the Lord, they're probably saying, Shh, hey, tell those guys to hush. Tell them to sit down. Tell them to be good. Tell them not to do that anymore. You, you had to know the disciples that were there. They had to have a part in that. And the, the man's words, the two men's words, Lord have mercy, became a part of a liturgy of a lot of churches. It's Kyrie eleison. That's the Latin. Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. Songs have been written about it, and it's been used in a lot of church liturgy. Lord have mercy. It's not something we deserve. It's not something that, that we can do anything about. Lord have mercy on us. Lord show us grace when we, when we don't deserve grace. Lord will you do what only you can do. We have been locked into this blindness. Can you give us light? Are we willing to learn the times that we need to say hush up and the times that we need to say here and extend a hand? Proverbs 1.5 is, is an interesting verse. It says let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. The day that I quit learning is the day that I need to give up being a pastor. The day that I quit learning is the day that, that I hope the Lord will take me home. I love to read. I, 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 people give me books and I try to read them as quickly as I can. Uh, you know, got the new John Grisham novel. It, it took me hours to finish that. Actually, one day. That's sad, but I did. I love to read, and I love to read different things. And, and as I read these things, I, I just do it because I want to grow, and I want to experience what someone else can tell me. And, and I love to read novels just for pleasure sometimes. I uh, took up scuba when I was 49 because I wanted to learn something different. Somebody, my son, Chris, wanted to do that with me, and 
I said, sure, I'll learn that. I still have a lot to learn about bicycles. Uh, someone, I, th- I think it was Radine McCullough, gave me uh, this. It, it was from a pastor on a Sunday morning in 1896. A Baltimore preacher thundered from his pulpit. This is what he said. Those bladder-wheeled bicycles are a diabolical device of the demon of darkness. They are contrivances to trap the feet of the unwary and skin the nose of the innocent. They are full of guile and deceit. When you think you have broken one to ride and subdued its wild and satanic nature, behold, it bucketh you off in the road and teareth a great hole in your pants. Look not on the bike when it bloweth upon its wheels, for at last it bucketh like a bronco and hurteth like thunder. Who has skinned legs? Who has a bloody nose? Who has ripped breeches? They that dally along with the bicycle. And in in the paper uh, on August 25th, 1896, this appeared. Hey, diddle, diddle, this bicycle riddle, the strangest part of the deal. Just keep your accounts and add the amounts. The sundries cost more than the wheels. Boy, is that ever true. I can laugh about that because I broke my ribs six weeks ago riding a bicycle. See, that's for those of you that don't know that. What I think is interesting is that we're always learning and growing. And we need to develop discernment. Our problem is knowing when there's a real hunger for Christ and when someone's looking for a handout. How can we know that? How can we know if someone's really in need? Well, I think the first thing you do is ask the Lord, pray. If you come across someone, you wonder, because folks, right now, every time you come out of Target, every time you go around the city, you're going to have somebody out there looking for a handout. And you say, I can't give to everyone. Who should I give to? Ask the Lord. That's why we're trying to provide some, some ways that you can help. Uh, we, we have the clean water for the, those in Laos. We have uh, what's happening in India. We have the Good News Rescue Mission here locally. Uh, you can go to World Vision and, and adopt a child. You can go to Compassion International, Gospel for Asia. Uh, our missionaries like Tan Seichau, uh, we're getting Bibles into what, places that you couldn't possibly go because we're doing that through the Mian people, through the, the, the uh, Oriental people there, the Asian people there. We have Tony and May. We have, we have uh, others. Uh, they're just Enoch and Janelle. Uh, there's, there's so many others that are out there that are doing good work. And the develop dis- developing discernment is to understand that Jesus Christ is passionately addicted to people. And he's consumed with the details of their life, their relationships, their eternal destinations. All you have to do is come to the Lord and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Develop discernment. And the third one is learn to love. Did you notice that when he heals them, he touches them? Why? It, it was, it was a, a weird thing because in their time, the lepers obs- absolutely could not be touched. But even the blind, they were afraid that somehow the blindness was contagious. And so many times the blind people were not touched by others. And especially their, their eyes would never be touched. He compassion, had compassion on them and touched their eyes, the very part that's afflicted, the very part that's affected, and and he touched their eyes, and when he touched their eyes, they had to be thinking, wow, this guy cares, this guy loves me. And they became followers. One of the commentaries that I read said, of course they became followers. It was love at first sight. The first time they'd ever seen someone, they saw their Lord. Did you have love at first sight the first time you recognized who Jesus Christ was? Did you have that love? When we grasp the love God has for us, it changes the way we live. Joseph Stoll that I 
that I referenced earlier says, all of life's decisions and attitudes can be transformed by this single fundamental dynamic. Nothing in life is more important than Christ and his cause. Everything we are and everything we have are at God's disposal. Our money, our career, our friends, our possessions, our property, even our closest family are his. Did you get that? Everything we are and everything we have are at his disposal. Is that the way you live your life? Do you love like that? You know, earlier we said that God made this covenant with Abraham. And he says, listen, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless all nations. And you will be given a son. And Abraham waited 24 years to have that son. In, in Genesis chapter 22, to come full circle to this, Abraham is then tested by the Lord. Then, then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. He actually had another one, Ishmael. But God did not recognize him because that was not the son of promise. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. If you go to Israel today and you go to the region of, of Mount Moriah, there's a city on it. It's called Jerusalem. And outside of the city, on the highest little crest, there's a little hill and it's called Calvary. It's called Golgotha. And on that same mountain, I believe, where where. God told Abraham to take Isaac. I believe that there was a cross put there many, many years later where Jesus Christ died for you and for me because he loved us. My question is, do you love him? Do you learn to love? Marilyn Meberg from the Women of Faith group wrote a really neat blog. Kathy gets her blog, and she says, I was born for this. Many of us assume that we were born to do something great, perhaps something that would change the world and make it a better place. Instead, we wake up each morning, eat our Ezekiel toast, and sip our green tea that tastes like lawn clippings and go on with our day. We go to bed at night with or without Ambien, wake up, and start all over again. Few of us would exult over this routine and crow, I was born for this. But we need to take a minute and ask the question, why was I born in light of Scripture? Does it answer that weighty question? The answer is yes. Of course, the Scripture answers the question with profound simplicity. Refresh your memory with Isaiah 1.4, excuse me, Ephesians 1.4, which states, long ago, even before he made the world, God loved us. This amazing scripture says that he loved us before he flung the stars into place or created the coastline of Laguna Beach, California. We got top love billing before absolutely every other created thing. He loved us even before he created us. Does that not blow your mind? We find the same theme in Ephesians 1, uh, Ephesians 1.11, which states, He chose us from the beginning and all things happened just as he decided long ago. What was it he chose? He chose to create us so that he might love us. He chose us to be the recipients of his never-ending, unfathomable love. So then why were we born? We were born to be loved by God, plain and simple. Some of you may be muttering a bit. I can hear you saying, how can you reduce that huge question about why we were born to such a simplistic God created us so he could love us answer? I didn't reduce it. God did. I didn't reduce it. God did. And I think Marilyn is absolutely right, but I think there's another aspect of that. He made us to love us, and he made us to love others. 
He says, I am going to bless you, and as I have blessed you, I want to bless others. The truth is, we love the privileges of Christianity, but we don't like some of the other parts of it. Matthew 28, in in the book David Platt has written, uh, in Matthew 28, where it says, go and make disciples, we say, well, that's for other people to do. But Matthew 11, where it says, all you who are weary, come to me and I will give you rest, that's for us. In Acts 1.8, it says, go into the ends of the world, that's for others. In John 10.10, he says, I've come to give you life, life to the full, oh, that's for us. What if we spent all of us, what if all of us spent all our lives for all he wants us to do in all the world? What if all of us spent all of our lives for all he wants us to do in all the world? What characteristics improve my conductivity? It was interesting because I was really praying about how to close this message and it came to me that I know a Denver too. There was the Denver that I mentioned earlier and same kind of different as me. I knew a, a man by the name of Denver Bruno, a Bruner, excuse me. Sorry, Liz, it's not your, not your relative. Denver Bruner, lived in Amarillo, Texas. He was a, a former oil uh, worker. He, he worked on an oil field until he hurt his back. He went to work at the dealership when I was a business manager there. And Denver probably swore more than any person I've ever seen. He couldn't ask for a cup of water without swearing. I mean, he used, he, he used swear words, in, where, words I've, in ways I've never heard before. I mean, he, he could make something filthy out of anything that he asked, and he went to work as a salesman. And when the sales manager hired him, I thought, well, this is never going to work. And he went to work in November, which is not the time to go to work. But the first month, the first month we paid them minimum wage. And then in Amarillo, Texas, when I was working, they had no minimum wage for salesmen. If you didn't sell anything, you didn't get anything. And on December 15th, the second month that he was working there, Denver had not sold a single car. And so when everybody else got a paycheck, they gave him just a blank piece of paper and said, try harder next time. December 15th, right before Christmas. And I thought, well, he just didn't try very hard. If he'd swear less, he'd sell more. If he'd paid more attention in the, in the classes, and I thought, well, Denver will just never make it in the sales business. And I was pretty smug. I was the business manager, and I knew what my bonus was going to be. In fact, on that particular 15th, I had gotten an $800 bonus in cash on top of my regular pay. It was a tremendous amount of money. And I went to the grocery store on the way home from work. I was just going to pick up a few things. I had $800 in my pocket. I'm feeling good with the world. And here came Denver. And he had a cart. And in it was one carton of milk and one loaf of bread. I said, Denver, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm taking the last money I have to buy a little food. I have two children at home. And I have to do something for them. And I said, Denver, what's going on? And he swore. And, he, and I talked to him, and he swore, and it was getting really, you know, and I'm this pastor who's also working as a business manager, and I'm kind of, you know, inching away from him because people in the store might know who I am, and they're hearing this guy swear, and they might think it's me swearing or something. And the Holy Spirit said to me, you got $800, can't you give him two? And I said, no. I mean, you know, really, Lord, I just can't do that. And the Lord broke my heart. I didn't give him 200 I gave him 400 I said, Denver, hopefully this will get you through to the next pay time. And he says, it's a loan, it's a loan. I said, no, it's a gift. He says, you can't give me $400. I said, I just did. And he says, well, you know, what's going to... I said, that's what the Lord has told me to do. And he looked up. Literally. He didn't have any idea what to do with that. 
And I told the Sunday school class about Denver, the Sunday school class where we were attending and that we were a part of. I told the Sunday school class, and one of the guys says, hey, we've got an extra tree. We'll take it over. And another one said, Rocky uh, Gilmore, i never forget. He said, well, we've got kids about the same age. We've got some extra toys. We'll take them over. And so all that week from the 16th to the 25th, this Sunday school class began to love on these people. The day after Christmas, I went back to work, and Denver came in, and there were tears running down his face as he walked through the door, and he says, I give up. What are you doing? And I said, Denver, what are you talking about? He says, all day long, he said, people brought us Christmas dinner, and and people have loved on us. We don't know these people. What the blankety-blank are they doing? I said, they're trying to show you who Jesus Christ is. He says, I give up. And we sat down right there in the dealership and I gave him the gospel and he accepted Jesus Christ. He prayed out loud. He even swore when he talked to the Lord. <laughs> but I don't think God minded too much. From the 15th through the 30th, no, more, no one sold more cars than Denver. He became one of our best salesmen. He got involved in the Sunday school class and his wife came to know the Lord and his two kids came to know the Lord. The last time I checked Denver was a deacon at the church because the Sunday school class showed compassion, showed discernment, and heard someone calling out, not in the words we expected, but, Lord, have mercy. My question is, what are you going to do with the message? Let's pray. Father, you've called us to hear a radical faith that loves the unlovely in our midst, that does what only you can do. And Father, I'm reminded of of people that I have crossed paths with on your divine appointments throughout my entire life, knowing that you wanted me to love them in you, to show compassion, to care, to show discernment, to give when prompted by your Holy Spirit. And Father, I realize that it doesn't come naturally. It's very hard for me to do. But we need to show your love because that's how you transform your people. Father, we need you to be radical in us so that we can be radical for you. To believe, to love, to give, to live the life you've given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.